So it might not seem like it, but it's the middle of the day here in Beijing. The air is so polluted that it's darkened the sky. Most of the progress towards the environment and saving it and getting rid of carbon, etc., has been done on a local level. Some people with the goal well, of making energy both cheaper but also completely clean. And so, with the right innovation. Uh, clean energy is actually cheaper than dirty. World's energy. biggest energy agencies believe the oil market will rebalance by the second half of this year, but there are still questions about price. Brent crude is down by more than. We will unleash the power of American energy, including shale, oil, natural gas, and clean coal. What we're going to do, folks, is going to be so special. Special. Hi, and welcome to this edition of Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm your host, Sam Ori. Innovation in clean energy is often said to be a critical element of any long-term strategy to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. History suggests, however, that more R&D spending doesn't always result in lower emissions. How can policymakers make the most of every R&D dollar? What's politically possible in Washington? And what technologies should we be watching for? Recently, Axios Energy reporter and Epic Journalism fellow Amy Harder discussed this topic at a dinner in downtown Washington, D.C. She was joined by Epic director Michael Greenstone, Epic policy fellow Makai Campbell, who's a managing partner at Blue Water Strategies and former staff director for the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, and Rich Powell, executive director of the ClearPath Foundation, which works to advance conservative policies that accelerate clean energy innovation. Here's their conversation. Thank you, everybody, for being here. Uh, I'm also very happy to be here, so thank you to Epic and uh, uh, everyone else that's helping to put this on. Um, So we are here to do a podcast live, which is really exciting, here in Washington, D.C., and I have three really smart people here next to me to talk about energy innovation and R&D and anything else we might want to talk about in Washington, D.C., less than a month before the midterm elections. Um, so I have Rich Powell, the executive director of the ClearPath Foundation, and then Mackay Campbell, managing partner at Blue Water Strategies, and of course, Michael Greenstone, uh, director of Epic. So I want to thank, thank you guys again for this conversation. And I want to start with a pretty broad question. Um, it has been one heck of a year in the United States of America, and in particular, Washington, D.C., Now, energy innovation hasn't been exactly at the top of the headlines, but for everybody listening to this podcast and who cares about energy, it certainly continues to be top of my mind, and I hope others as well. So I guess, Rich, I'll start with you. Can you talk about, like, what has happened in in the innovation space that you think is actually kind of some positive news? Well, thanks very much, Amy. So... For, for the record, for the audience, just so you know, we're in an Indian restaurant right now where it's a little bit noisy. Um, and we've all had actually like a lot of wine and, and heavy Indian food. So just we're for the... reluctantly taking a break from you. Yes, for the, for the listening audience, just, just so everybody knows. Uh, I'm holding a glass of wine right now, actually, as Amy points out. Yeah. So this has actually been, um, again, not, not something that's led the headlines, but from our perspective, an incredibly productive year in clean energy innovation. So just amongst many uh, interesting developments, uh, two uh, targeted technology-specific tax incentives were extended and significantly expanded for advanced nuclear energy and for carbon capture technology that sort of leveled the playing field 
with intermittent renewables to scale up existing clean energy technologies. And we saw two uh, spending bills that contained the largest ever increases to clean energy R&D funding um, in both the FY18 and the FY19 spending bills. Um, and not only were they big increases in funding, they were also containing a lot of really interesting and important reforms to how that money was spent uh, and to better target those resources uh, toward really important and disruptive programs like very large grid-scale storage and advanced nuclear technology that allow our innovators to better compete globally around the world. It's also been terrific new legislation either passed or introduced on uh, nuclear energy innovation that sort of set up a test bed for those technologies here in the United States that would allow us to compete more effectively uh, around the world with, for example, our Russian competitors. So um, from that lens, this has been quite an interesting and productive year in the clean energy innovation space. Great. Makai, can you talk to us about sort of your perspective, both as a former longtime staffer on Capitol Hill and then now, you know, managing a lot of these issues from the private sector? How has, how has innovation in R&D changed since you were on the Hill? Well, I think we're seeing coming to fruition a lot of things that have been talked about for a long time. And you talked about this being under the headlines. Frankly, under the headlines has been a really good place to be over this last year. I mean, there are plenty of controversy and plenty of headlines, but actually Congress has gotten a fair amount of stuff done and just quietly things chugging away. And we've been very pleased with that. It's nothing. There's no new sudden hey, we have a wonderful idea, let's do it this year. It's been, this is things people have been talking about, but they're finally putting it together and making it happen. It's really excellent. Michael, um, so of course you were in the Obama administration and now leading uh, all the smart work at the University of Chicago on these issues. What, how are are things as different in the innovation space between the two administrations um, as they are on almost every other policy issue? (laughs) Um, I think uh, probably in the innovation space, uh, being below the radar has allowed for much more continuity than in many other areas. Uh, So in terms of pricing carbon, there was no real Obama policy to do that, but there was the use of the social cost of carbon through regulatory analysis uh, that served as kind of a price. That's more or less gone. Uh, but as Rich pointed out, uh, there's really been a lot of continuity and even some expansions. And I think uh, the targeted incentives uh, for uh, CCS and nuclear are really tremendous policy. Uh, you know, the best policy would be kind of a technology neutral one, but uh, this is a big step forward. So, of course, you know, innovation and research and development uh, doesn't just fall from the sky, it, it often takes money. Uh, of some type or another. Uh, so I want to do a quick lightning round question, which means that you answer with just one word. Uh, and I know that's hard to do in Washington. So I continue to fail at this, but I will continue to try. Um, so when it comes to uh, supporting innovation and in energy, do you think a carrot policy, such as subsidies and things like that, or a stick policy, like some sort of price or tax uh, on on energy, for example, is better. So carrot or stick? Say one or the other. Each of you can, can go down the line. Carrot, both. That's kind of cheating, but I'll, I'll give it to you, Mackay. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> uh, 
I have no choice but to go with stick, <laughs> which is, I See, think, look the at right that. answer. <laughs> but I like, I like disagreement because it means that we're not just saying the same thing yeah. in, a, in a bubble with each other, which too often happens, I think, in any sort of policy discussion. So that's great. So let's build a little bit more on that. So this year we've seen, I think, a lot of carrots given out. Um, and the energy secretary, Rick Perry, has talked a lot about how, well, the energy sector is already winners, is already picking winners and losers. So, and this is me continuing, not him. He just wants to continue to pick more winners and losers. Um, only winners. We should only pick winners. <laughs> I guess that's what Washington does best. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about, you know, what, what this administration could do more of. You know, I, we've seen, for example... The, the administration has zeroed out the funding for ARPA-E, the sort of super innovative uh, agency within the energy department on this technology, although the Congress has then funded it despite that proposal. Talk about what the administration could do more of and, and if, you know, what the administration is doing right in this area. Anybody can jump in on that one? Yeah, I think uh, it's super easy. Uh, there should be a price on carbon. Uh, and the administration is just waiting to unveil that policy. Uh, and that will <laughs> unleash innovation all over the place. Uh, in the absence of that, or maybe even as a complement to that, uh, I think an enormous expansion in RPE uh, and other clean energy uh, spending programs would be a great idea. Uh, I, you know, there's the old line about uh, that you, speeches are in poetry and the budget is in prose. And the prose is pretty bad with RP. Yes, it's funded at $300 million, but there's no plausible rate of return on that $300 million where that it could have any meaningful impact. Because it's so small. It's so tiny, yeah. It's so I mean, tiny. I would like $300 million. No, no, right. Uh, that would be a lot to me. The, right, and I would definitely support that. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Uh, but Can in I addition, I think it should be $3 billion for RP and $300 million for you. Sounds great. Mikai, do you do you support a, a carbon tax? I don't think a carbon tax is going to happen for a long time. I think that it is going to be happen eventually. Um, we've talked about this previously. We did a during the uh, Waxman Margie days. We did a lot of looking at a revenue neutral carbon tax. Um, I think it had a real shot at that point. It lost. Congress changed. I don't think it's going to come back for quite a while. But I I do think. Exxon's announcement today, while no surprise, they've been pretty open and for a while, is a significant step forward. So, of course, Exxon has recently announced that they're going to uh, put $1 million over two years to urge Congress to pass a carbon tax, yes. which is a significant development from the Do we really have to call $1 million from Exxon over two years a significant development? Is that, what's the denominator? What are we dividing that by? Yeah. From zero. Okay. So it's not as much as 300 million. In terms of lobbying fees, it's significant. Right. See, yeah. Mackay agrees with me. Yeah. I would also say, going back to my both thing, um, I think one, to be a stick, there probably a carbon tax is what ultimately it will be in some form or another. But I also think we're going to see, we've seen greater openness to an equality of carrots, if I can coin a phrase, where for years we would deal with the RPS, the RFS. People kept thinking if we just change the initials, they'll pass it. But the reality was they didn't want, folks didn't want nuclear in there, didn't, didn't want hydro in there. And we'd have very vigorous discussions about, look, 
Is your aim here to get emissions-free energy, or is your aim simply to bolster the wind industry or solar? And frankly, in some of the more honest discussions, it was to simply fund those organizations, those uh, types of energy. I've seen, as Rich was talking about, we've seen much greater openness now to equality on nuclear. I think hydro is still slowly coming along. It's both. Let's talk a little bit about nuclear power. I think there's sort of a, a split screen going on in, on this industry. On the one hand, one news story that did break through and get to the top of the headlines, at least for a moment, was the, the near collapse of uh, Southern Company's uh, Vogel project, which I think its price tag is close to $30 billion. Um, and it's continuing to sort of limp ahead, but you, that can't, I don't think, be described as a winner, even if it does cross the finish line. And on the other hand, you have advanced nuclear technology, which continues to have some promise. And there was the, the piece of um, uh, legislation in Congress. Rich, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what kind of what you see on the existing side, the reactors that are already running now that are shutting down versus the advanced technology? It's pretty much totally different industries. You might as well divide them up in that respect. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I think, um, unfortunately... The United States put a lot of effort, um, particularly in the second Bush administration, into, into the nuclear renaissance, which led to kind of more gigawatt-scale reactor designs. And that was just anticipating a future where demand growth was going to continue growing like, like gangbusters in the United States. There was going to be all this new opportunity to build new, gigantic power plants. Um, and and there would be no fracking. That was also and, right, and there would be no fracking. And so interestingly, as, as all of that was happening... The fracking revolution happened and the vast efficiency mandates that that administration also put into place started heavily eating into demand growth along with a recession. Uh, and so Just a few things. Just a couple of things worked against that plan. And so what was a plan to build, you know, 25 at one point new gigawatt scale reactors suddenly became four, suddenly became actually, you know, commenced construction and suddenly is now two that are sort of struggling along. And so we're just in an utterly different environment than the policy regime was planned for, right? If you were building 25 gigawatt scale reactors, this whole thing might have been approached very differently, right? Supply chains might have developed and scaled up in a very different way. Each individual part might have been a lot cheaper, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so instead, we're kind of left with these kind of this one remaining project, um, which we believe is a very important project to complete, if nothing but to keep those supply chains alive for the next generation of technology that will come behind it. But the reality is the future is not going to be gigawatt scale anything being built. That is, at least in the developed world, that is misaligned with where electricity markets are headed. A combination of lack of demand growth, very uh, inexpensive alternatives like... Um, you know, shale gas-fired combined cycle natural, turbine, natural gas turbines, which can operate sort of at any level, uh, and uh, a lot of uh, demand for distributed generation, a lot of nimbyism, which makes it very difficult to build big things. That's all driving the power industry towards smaller uh, manufactured things that are then put in place. They're installed. They're not constructed on site. And so if nuclear is going to thrive in the future, it simply has to become a lot more like a wind turbine, right? A wind turbine is somewhere between... One, and, you know, ideally now with big ones, 12, 12 megawatts large, and it's manufactured in a factory. It is brought somewhere, and it is installed on site, right? That's what we have to get to 
in nuclear. And thankfully, a number of American nuclear innovators are taking on that challenge. Uh, and there's now increasing policy support to um, help that kind of new wave of reactors come along. And we hope that you know, by the end of the 2020s, there will be viable options that can supply that market. So one thing, sort of one topic underlying all this topic of innovation, I often find that innovation is sort of the politically uh, correct and nice word to use when we're talking about how do we address climate change. Because if climate change wasn't an issue, do we really need energy innovation? I think, I think that's a fair question to ask. And so, you know, I think we have a great diverse set of um, political positions here at this podcast. We have a former Obama administration official, a former Republican staffer, and a conservative um, clean energy leader. And so if, can each of you talk about, you know, whether or not you agree with what I just said, that, you know, this, this energy innovation and R&D discussion you know, the, over, the overarching underlying issue is that emissions need to come down. I guess yes or no, if you agree with that statement. I think Michael's probably going to say yes. Uh, so did, I, I didn't quite get the thing. Well, that the underlying purpose of all this innovation is to address climate change. Oh, no, we always want innovation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Was that a question? Yeah. <laughs> I, I knew you would say yes. So. Yeah. This one I probably can't contain myself to so a yes or no answer on. But the answer is clear. Forget climate change. We do want the innovation or pollution. Or energy is such a fundamental resource. It affects everything. To the extent we can bring energy costs down, it helps. There's nothing more fundamental you can do to help our economy. And so, and, and there's a whole host of various side effects of various forms of energy. Leaving climate change out of it, we still need to look at and be careful about. Rich. I'll say yes and, uh, even if we don't care about climate change or our enthusiasm for climate policy solutions right now may be at a low, uh, the world is sort of on this trajectory. It has kind of spoken in, you know, greater and lesser volume in different places. And if we want our energy industry and technology manufacturers to be competitive with the Chinese, for example, who are in most of these technologies far out ahead of us. I mean, they're now the undisputed leaders in the global solar manufacturing space. We have some chance of catching back up with our advanced technologies, but that will be hard. They're already well ahead of us on some advanced nuclear technologies. If we want to have a hope of kind of owning any part of that future global clean energy market beyond natural gas, which is big and good and important, but won't be forever, you know, at least in an unmitigated form, we have to become more competitive on these technologies, regardless of what you think about the urgency of solving climate as a domestic priority. So there's a couple of questions. Can I, can I just say, I think we're wandering into uh, picking winners here. Uh, do we care if we're good at producing solar panels versus computer chips? I don't know. Rich, I think that was directed toward you. Uh, as, as Well, certainly as an American taxpayer who's, who's funding the energy innovation complex, I, I care that it then results in... I don't know. I mean, I, like, I think, I mean, one, like, I don't want to overstate it, but... Let me get near overstating it. Like, did the Chinese do us an enormous favor by driving down the cost of producing solar panels? Yes. Probably did. Yeah. And is, is that, should we send them a dollar and say thank you? I, I actually think the German taxpayers did us an They did. That's a, a, a collection yeah. of people. Yeah. The Germans were first, German and the Chinese were yeah. the second money in the door. <laughs> but I think you guys are getting at this important point of, you know, is energy innovation inherently a global global issue, or is it more of a competitive issue? 
And I think under this administration, of course, who has made trade a, a big component of its agenda, I think that's certainly a relevant question. Yes, both. What are some technologies that, so in the clean energy race, you know, I remember a decade ago, politicians in Washington were talking about how they didn't want China to win the clean energy race. And I think, uh, as Rich and I have discussed before, I think the, the race is, is, is being mostly won so far by China. What are some technologies that are still sort of very much uh, up in the air in terms of who might... Wait, why is China winning it? Don't yeah, we, yeah. we get to purchase cheap solar panels. Maybe we're the winners. We didn't have to spend all that money on it. What about, you know, TerraPower? It's an advanced nuclear power company. They're building the first reactor in China. Should we be concerned about that? I think we'd have to articulate what uh, we're losing from that. Uh, and there might be knowledge spillovers, and those would be super important. Uh, and that might, then that, there would be a good case for it. Uh, or maybe the case runs through it through carbon. But I do, I worry a little bit about innovation. It's like, you know, it's, uh, I, love, uh, I love my mom, I love apple pie, I, I must love innovation, but uh, your innovation could well be you reaching into my pocket and trying to take $100. And or it's $300 like, million. So we should, or $300 million, yeah. So we should be clear on what, like, market, right. so what, like where is the market feeling? There's manufacturing to, innovation yeah. and the sort of technical innovation. And so... Yeah. You know, just like in Silicon Valley is where I, uh, Apple makes this, it comes up with the iPhones, it goes to China to be made. Is that kind of what you're saying here in, on energy? Yeah, I just think we should articulate what the problem is we're trying to solve. But, like, there, there's so much under that umbrella of innovation uh, that I think a lot of it are not things we'd want to spend money on. So the, the United Nations recently issued this big seminal report on <laughs> the science of climate change. And... We won't go into the details of that, uh, but what I, what I thought was interesting from that report is that they talked about the importance of basically technologies that remove carbon dioxide from the sky, and that's you know, air, you know, a carbon capture project um, or something like a, what the, a Swiss company does, where they just take carbon out of the sky. It's sort of this um, zany-sounding technology, but it does exist. Can we talk a little bit about the innovation in that respect? How important, a quick uh, additional lightning round question on a scale of 1 to 10, how important do you think this technology is to uh, addressing climate change and innovating in the energy space? So 10 being essential, 1 being not essential. Can I say, can I say a number and, yes, okay. and color? That'll be so. allowed. I would say 10, mostly because that creates the backstop number above which we should have no other policy, right? So as soon as we get atmospheric carbon dioxide removal down to 200 bucks a ton, we can end every solar net metering policy everywhere in the United States because those are all significantly more expensive than the backstop technology. And the lower we can bring that, the, the more stupid policies we can cut off and focus only on the cheaper policies. I realize it doesn't actually work that way, but you could you could try. Makai, do you have a, a number? I'd say eight. Um, and actually, interestingly enough, I think the biggest opposition to being able to do something like that is those who view climate as a moral issue and almost as a quasi-religious issue, and they're very worried that if all of a sudden we have that type of fix, then we don't need to do all this other stuff they feel is morally very important. I agree. I, I tend to think that 
you know, people who think that we're going to just continue our dependence on fossil fuels if we have this technology. I'm like, well, we are already continuing our dependence on fossil fuels, so we might as well find a technology to address it. Michael, do you have a number between 1 and 10? Yeah, I think uh, I, I'm probably very close to Rich's view. I'll probably go for 10. Uh, and let me emphasize, coming back to what's the principled reason, uh, I, there's both the carbon side, but the second is it's an incredibly immature area. Uh, and very, and since there's not a global price on carbon, it's very hard for private firms to really enter that and devote lots of resources. So it's like almost tailor-made for government support to try and there might be some generic learning that would benefit lots of people. So We've talked a lot about sort of what the government role should be with this administration not taking a significant leadership role and particularly talking about this, these issues it raises the question about what companies should be doing. What kind of role do you think companies should play in innovating and in starting these sort of uh, nascent technologies? Do you think it's something that perhaps companies could do more or perhaps even private citizens, such as, of course, Bill Gates um, has done a lot in this space and other philanthropists. Is that something that you think needs to be stepped up in terms of the focus? I have the feeling that companies could be doing a lot more on the procurement front. So at this point, you know, the next big solar purchasing commitment, so Budweiser, for example, just said 100% solar. Fantastic. So they're going to use the same virtual PPA structure that the last people did, and they're going to incrementally deploy a couple more 100 megawatts of solar. And yeah, that's just very different in terms of level of ambition from what Google and Walmart initially did when they sort of kicked this whole thing off and they said, we're going to 100% renewable. They had no idea how that would happen. There was all kinds of innovation that was required to actually make those goals real. And so I think leadership, the bar now has been dramatically raised for leadership in the corporate sector and kind of what that looks like. And so I think companies should be much more focused on, you know, 100% clean energy or actually powering a data center, for example, with 100% on-site clean electrons, that would be a technical challenge, a really big technical challenge. That's the kind of thing that companies should now be doing, you know, to retake leadership in this. Uh, And I'll defer to Michael on this, but I mean, companies are going to do where they think they can make money or whether they think it will influence consumers to like them better and help them make money. I I, want to go back for one second, though, to uh, carbon removal, because... Well, I think the technology is very, very important. I think what's almost more important is figuring out what we productively do with that. And because that's all, to me, the greater challenge, and we need to figure that one out. Well, one way I mean, is to make beer. Did you yeah, know that, Mackay? Beer? Well, <laughs> about six months ago, there was an interstep, inter, uh, in that thing, which I think was totally false. <laughs> about China being able to make diamonds, and they were doing carbon remo- carbon dioxide removal, making diamonds. I'm all for it, but uh, but what to do with it? You know, I mean, you can obviously do oil recovery. You can, but that's a very limited amount of stuff you can do with it. I disagree. No diamonds. Great. No, no, I'm fine with diamonds, uh, <laughs> particularly if you can arrange for some for me. But no, I think uh, I, I kind of have a you companies to first approximation are there to make profits. Uh, and it's very difficult for them to choose to do something more than that. So actually, I think we should be looking to people, uh, not companies. Uh, and so that can both obviously influence the political process, but customers, if they express that they want their products made with clean energy, I think that's a much more reliable and effective way than 
people making pledges that are more likely than not unverifiable uh, and um, you know uncertain impact. So I have one more question I want to ask for our listeners and everybody here in, in the restaurant. So talking about people. So if each of you had, since Michael said 300 million wasn't nearly enough, I'm going to up the ante a little bit. I'm going to say $10 billion. If each of you suddenly had $10 billion to innovate in anything you wanted in the energy space, what would it be? No pressure. And, and dead silence on a podcast doesn't sound good, so somebody's, somebody's got to start talking. I would, I would put in place a $10 billion prize for any technology which can, with zero emissions, fully dispatchable, deployable anywhere in the world, produce power at the same cost as combined cycle natural gas. That's impressively well thought out, given I just told you that question 20 seconds ago. It's almost like we do nothing but think about it. <laughs> right, crazy. I would pick winners because while I have no, 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 because while I have no faith in the government's ability to pick winners or losers, I have total faith in my ability to pick the winners. And that's what no, the Secretary of Energy and thinks. As as part of that, actually, what I would try to do is equalize the level of subsidies that create um, various incentives for certain types of clean energy. Um, I'd like to put a lot of it, and this goes back to actually picking winners, on nuclear and some of those other things. I think where we can put money into working at the frontiers of science that would, could lead to big breakthroughs, you know, not, not refining the solar panel, but you know, quantum differences in superconductivity and fusion, et cetera, like that. And, um, you know. Well, only $10 billion? I mean, you can up it if you want because this is just a game. So... Uh, I am kind of very tempted by Mackay's answer to level the playing field. I just worry that we'd burn through the $10 billion very quickly. Uh, and I think Rich's idea is terrific, and I don't think anything in North America will ever beat a combined cycle natural gas plant. Uh, we have one in the room, Bill Brown. Uh, besides Bill Brown. <laughs> so I will uh, play out of character and say uh, and pick a winner. Uh, and say it's very, very hard for me to see uh, the bright, clean future without improvement in batteries. And I just shove the whole thing in batteries and find out what happens. Nice. Well, I think that is a good, uh, relatively positive note to end on. Um, I want to say thank you to the panelists. And until next time. Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more, Epic, in partnership with ClearPath, the American Council for Capital Formation, and Oxford University, hosted a conference that drilled down further on this topic. The full video can be found on Epic's website at epic.uchicago.edu. Until next time, I'm Sam Mori.